Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. We have a new sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, located in Decatur, Georgia. It is possibly the best bookstore in the known universe. It's a local, independent children's bookstore, but they're so much more than just a bookstore. If you've never shopped there, you're missing out. You can call and speak to a bookseller anytime to get personalized recommendations and follow them on social media to keep up with the many, many events they organize. You can find them online at littleshopofstories.com and they ship all over the world. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Chart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we are doing our 100th episode. 100 episodes. It's also <laughs> the last episode of this 1922 season, which has been a wild ride. This is true. Today we're talking about The History of Mankind by Hendrik Willem Van Loon, which uh, he illustrated himself also. And um, we're so excited to be wrapping up the first complete season of Newberry Honorees. So his his last name is Lone, not Loon? Yeah, so he's Dutch. And I read this whole thing where it was addressed, and he said that he still pronounces it in the Dutch way of Van Loon, but that he assumed that his kids would probably at some point go with Van Loon. So I think either way is okay, but mm-hmm. I go with Van Loon. So is it... It's- Heinrich or Hendrik? Hendrik, and I don't know okay. if it's Willem or Willem, so you could go either way with that too. I like to think of it as Hendrik Willem Van Loon. <laughs> That's a fun thing to think in my head, so I'm going to go with that. It is fun. But I have an annotation. It's from the ALA Newberry and Caldecott Awards book edited by KT Horning. The story of mankind, speaking directly to the reader, the author provides a fascinating picture of history from cave peoples to the present, 1920. Ideas, movements, and people are more important than dates, and and history is shown as something that builds upon itself. They absolutely got it right that there are very few dates. (laughs) This This book, while probably the most readable of the ones that we read this year, And it has a funny little charm to it here and there because he's very self-aware of maybe his failings. It's all kind of written in a way like a kid could have made it up, like, because there aren't dates all the time. No, that's true. And there's switching back and forth in time, too. It's real interesting and odd. Yeah, well, I mean, apparently he wrote it for his children. So the one very positive thing that I would have to say about this book is that it is super conversational. It it reads very much like when my kids ask me questions and I'm answering them. It's just that I object to the name of this book, The Story of Mankind, because this is in no way a story. It is a chronological, sometimes, um, <laughs> detailing of the entire history of mankind. And there's no plot per se, you know, the characters are just historical figures, but it's not told like a story. It's just told like facts. It's as if your kid was like, who's Napoleon? And you're like, well, okay, Napoleon was this guy and he lived here and he lived then and he fought like two battles. And then this other thing happened. Like there's no attempt at building it into a narrative or part of something interesting with interesting characters behind it. It's just like answering a question. I would almost say that Hendrik is the main character in this, and it's the world according to Hendrik. Yeah. <laughs> I would, and, and along those lines, that would lines, be a much better title. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I do think it's a story. I feel like it it is a mythologizing of history and it's it's filtered completely through his own biases. And there's even a part where he talks about this is near his end of his chapter about Napoleon and he talks about if you want an explanation of this strange career, he's talking about Napoleon, if you really wish to know how one man could possibly rule so many people for so many years by the sheer force of his will, do not read the books that have been written about him. Their authors either hated the emperor or loved him. You will learn many facts, but it is more important to feel history than to know it. Don't read it, but wait until you have a chance to hear a good song's artist saying the song, The Two Grenadiers. <laughs> So I feel like this was a whole lot of Henrik feeling history and he left out Asia, Africa, you know, actual history. (laughs) It's fine if you want to write a European history, but he claims to be writing a comprehensive history of the whole world and, and leaving out tons. I mean, you know, there's places where he, he says, you know, I know I'm leaving things out, but they haven't impacted everybody, but it just, that feels so false, you know, because I think the true reason for him leaving things out is that he has this biased view of the world in which the things that are not, you know, European centric (laughs) are, are just not as consequential. I I mean, I completely agree with that. And I think that part of, you know, this book could have been worse than it was, but he just omitted over half the world. And so that way it's not as bad as it is like the great quest because he's just not spending any time with them. And that's, I, to me, that's, that's just as much of an aggrievous sin, I guess, in a book. Right. Well, yeah. And to specifically say, Hey, I know I'm leaving things out, but they didn't contribute is, is truly offensive. And that's on 278. He said, in this book, I'm trying to give you only those events of the past which can throw a light upon the conditions of the present world. If I do not mention certain countries, the cause is not to be found in any secret dislike on my part. I wish that I could tell you what happened to Norway and Switzerland and Serbia and China. But these lands exercise no great influence upon the development of Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. I therefore pass them by with a polite and very respectful bow. But he loves England because England, however, is in a different position. And I'm like, yeah, because you're from Europe and that is your bias and that's what you know about or you've been told about your whole life because it's hard for me to understand that or think that he really researched most of this. It it feels like him, he's your old grandpa, you want to hear a story and your grandpa is just kind of shooting the breeze. Like it feels like that and it has a lot of like half facts and completely made up things. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, he clearly just filled in what he wanted to fill in when he didn't know, but it's sad in a way. I mean, I know that this book was well-intentioned and compared to a lot of the other ones we read this season, it's much better. You know, I can see why it had such a landslide of votes compared to the others, but the lack of actual fact checking and then the the resulting treating of this book like historical fact rather than historical fiction or rather than somebody's opinion on what might have happened is i think pretty harmful in the long run 
Yeah. I mean, there's everything from the smallest detail that I have that, you know, it's just, it was a simple one that stood out to me that I kept chuckling about. And it's really early in the book. He's just, he just basically has made up a story about how people decided to cook food. Yeah. And he's like, and then one evening a dead chicken fell into the fire. This is happening in a cave. These are with cave people. It was not rescued until it had been well roasted. Man discovered that meat tasted better when cooked. And he then and there discarded one of the old habits, which he had shared with the other animals and begin to prepare his food. So it's it's all the way from that to maps that seem to just be completely made up. I mean, he's got the correct geographical general area, but he like he has this map of Mesopotamia. <laughs> and it's completely out of scale. One, two, it's it's got these parts marked off. So it's got a drawing of a pot on a fire in the middle of this landmass, it's supposed to be next to Babylon. And he's got the pyramids and up above the pyramids, which looks like it's just the ocean, or maybe those are supposed to be the the mountains. It says the mountains where people do not want to live. And then it's got on the bottom, this is the hot desert where people do not want to live. And it's like people have lived there before, you know, in time and memoriam. Yeah. And you just don't <laughs> want to talk about those people or don't think they're important. So that's why you've labeled that. But I mean, it's absolutely whole cloth made up stuff. I mean, this is absolutely an incorrect drawing of Mesopotamia with all sorts of weird little labels and little asides. It, in it. it looks like a doodle in a, in a notebook somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And you're right, though, because, I mean, when he's talking about sort of like the the development of people as people, you know, evolving from the primordial ooze. You know, he goes back to like single cells floating on the ocean. But when he gets to the people developing into people, he he makes it clear that he's talking about Europeans, right? So Mm -hmm. he ignores Africa altogether. And then once he's done talking about how like cells divided and became fish and they started walking on land and blah, 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 and became people, after all that, and he's like, now let's go over to Egypt where they're already building like pyramids. Like he skipped over all of that development because it was not about the Europeans. But so he does include Africa, but it's it's only really the Egyptians. And during that chapter, he just makes up hieroglyphics. Yes. Um, I checked against Gardner's list of signs, which he was another white European man, but it's a you know, I think it's a pretty comprehensive list and there are no drawings of bees or leaves to, to signify the word belief because of course that is a, an English word. Right. Um, nor there, is there a giraffe with a palm tree and these are hieroglyphics that he created, I guess, for illustrative purposes, for demonstrative purposes, but they're pretty insulting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're going to try to explain an entire system of writing and language, you might as well like look in a book and use an actual example and mm-hmm. not just be mm-hmm. like, you know, this drawing could look like a leaf and then that means leaf and then it means the sound that leaf makes. Like it's just, it's, it's not that there were no resources available for him to do that. You know, he just decided to tell it the way he liked it. And that just really belies, you know, he was, his narrative, being a white man of European descent, that was the dominant narrative. Right. Right. And that was the dominant narrative in America. And so, you know, not only do we have these made up maps, we have things like barely talking about 
American slavery, just talking about how the Spaniards brought the concept of slavery to the U.S. And just basically just has a few sentences about how, you know, they were lucky. And uh, it wasn't a big deal. And, you know, some some old-fashioned language referring to the African people. But it's really just like a page in this whole book that's like over 500 pages. So, you know, there's also that, that, that like whitewashing, that like idea of like, you know, the things that aren't desirable or useful to me are just not going to be even focused on in any depth. Yeah. So, um, it's a little hard to judge this book because we have our perspective now and, but the perspective at the time that it came out was entirely different. This book was super well-received, super, super well-received. How many votes were there altogether? There were 212 votes, and this got 163. Right, compared to, for example, some of the other honorees that year that we've already talked about got two. So this was like landslide, complete victory, and such a popular book that even though this, I'm using air quotes here, history of mankind, or story of mankind, goes from like prehistory, like pre- anything pre-life <laughs> to World War One. even after the author's death, they continue to make additions. So I have two different editions here. And the, the first printing, like I said, it goes to World War One, but then I've got um, a 1954 copy, I believe. And that has an edition that his son wrote that takes it up to the founding of the United Nations. And I believe they continued to add more and more history as history happened with further and further editions. So it was, it was well enough regarded that they continued to do this and continued to treat it like an authority. But I think that is part of the problem because it is clearly just one guy's recounting of history from his own perspective, from his own cultural background, with no fact-checking <laughs> and no accountability, being treated like a real history book that's been authenticated. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I get it, right? Like, it was lauded in its time. But there's no reason to me, there's no reason it should be updated with new chapters and that other stuff shouldn't be examined. Right. Like if you're going to go to all that trouble, why not address some of the previous stuff? Like if you're going to add things as new things come to light, like add the things that he omitted, add the things that he completely ignored. You know, if you're already altering the text, why don't you just fill in the gaps? I mean, at this point, let's just let this book rest, right? And let's, I mean, I have no money, no clout, but I would love to see, you know, some history chapter by chapter, global history written by actual like contemporary children's writers on, you know, concurrent events, right? Right. Like that would be really interesting. And I think that would be worlds better than this. Keep They keep, you know, trotting this out and just adding more stuff to it when, you know, there are so many things in here that are absolutely incorrect. I mean, absolutely, absolutely incorrect. And, you know, there's little digs and little, at best, outdated language, at worst, racial slurs here and there. So I think it's okay to let this one go, right? You know, make a make a second story of mankind and do something new or just 
start a whole new book with multiple perspectives and with expertise and fact-checking, I think that would be okay. I like the idea of this book. I mean, when you look at the way that it's organized, while he does... I think you've mentioned before, I jump around in time a little too much, which makes it confusing at times. The The way that the contents are organized makes it very easy to flip through and find the historical thing that you're looking for. There's a very good index in the back. There's more resources. All of that's helpful, and I like the idea of a really comprehensive history book for kids that's in this very approachable conversational language. That I mean, that part is really nice. It's just that you know, all the, all the things that we've already talked about make it hugely problematic. And you're right. If somebody new would take this on, nobody has to sit and write this like 500 page history book. Like your idea of different authors doing different chapters is brilliant. It's just, you're right. I think we need to take two on this. Yeah. And it's okay to let things go sometimes, right? It's okay to let, like, this was published in 1922. I can see so much of the willful ignorance and just incorrect information that we saw with maybe our grandparents' generation coming from maybe reading this when they were younger. Yeah. And, you know, seeing this as an authority. And it's it's okay to let things go and just move past. And we know more now. So let's embrace that, right? Like, there's no reason to hold on to this as like something that's a useful thing now. It is useful or interesting as a historical document. And I don't mean that because of its content, but because it was the first winner and because, you know, we're now at a hundred years, but it is not useful for learning history or for, you know, because even the stuff that he gets right, it is so through his own filter, it can't really be seen as like a, you know, like scholarly. It just can't be. You're right. For anybody who wants to read it, which again, it is more readable than, than the other books that were honorees that year. It is available on Project Gutenberg. I believe the full text of the original version is there, not the later editions that I saw. But you can read the the part that goes up to World War One that, that was actually written by this author. We'd like to say thanks again to our sponsor, Little Shop of Stories, our local independent children's bookstore, for helping to make this podcast possible, both financially and through their phenomenal programming. They're offering an exclusive promo for our listeners when you shop online at littleshopofstories.com. Just use the promo Newberry Tart to get 10% off your purchase. That's Newberry with one R, N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T, to get 10% off your purchase. A little bit about Henrik himself. He was, as Marcy mentioned, he was actually Dutch and he considered himself Dutch American. He was a reporter. He was a war correspondent during the Russian Revolution in Russia and in Belgium during the First World War, during the early stages. And then he was a professor and became a writer. He wrote a lot of books. A lot, a lot. Yeah, a lot of them had to do with Dutch history, which is great, you know go Dutch history. During the Second World War, he ended up assisting refugees, European refugees, and he was broadcast on the Netherlands on the radio doing speeches. It says his name, radio name was Oom Hank. 
translated as Uncle Hank. And to quote this article, I'll, I'll post it. It's his obituary. No, it actually is a profile on newnetherlandinstitute.org. It says here, for his contributions during the war, Queen Wilhelmina, the Dutch queen, knighted him in 1942. Van Loon was also apparently on friendly terms with the Roosevelts, both Franklin and Eleanor. So, yeah, he was like a really well-known person at the time, really big author. And I don't know, it's it's hard to it's hard to be so critical about a person who clearly like was trying, right? Like mm-hmm. I, it makes me wonder about the rest of his books. Like I'm not going to read them. I can tell you that right now, but <laughs> but you know, one of the things I personally value in any kind of history or historical fiction is like good research. So if he was such a history writer, you have to wonder, were all his books like this or did he actually, I don't know. I mean, because he was Dutch, did he just inherently know more about Dutch history and wrote from what he knew there, but it was more accurate or was he just speculating again? And then those history books again, take, were taken as fact and built on in a way like it, I'm very curious to know how that worked out. Yeah, there's not there's not much about him aside from just kind of the outline of his life and then, of course, what he shares in the book. Right. And so it's hard to know. But, I mean, one would think there would be proper maps at least. Well, I don't know. This one is full of really bad ones. and <laughs> It's stuck around yeah, a but, while. I mean, how, how much is – who like who has used this as a reference book since then, right? I mean, there had to be maps that were proper during that time. It was the 1920s. It wasn't like it was, you know. Medieval times. Yeah. Which, oh my God, that, the explanation. Okay, this might be the last thing I share, but it's one of my favorite things. Do you know what I'm about to share? Yes, I do. (laughs) Okay. So he has this whole thing about how medieval, the medieval times, not the anachronistic dinner theater chain. But um, actual medieval Middle Ages, he talks about how that ended. And there's no dates. There's no actual information. He just says, they set to work. They opened the windows of their cloistered and studious cells. A flood of sunlight entered the dusty rooms and showed them the cobwebs, which had gathered during the long period of semi-darkness. Metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> they began to clean house. Next, they cleaned their gardens. And then they went out into the open fields outside the crumbling town walls and said, this is a good world. We're glad we live in it. At that moment, the Middle Ages came to an end and a new world began. Yeah. Instantaneously. Instantaneously. Magically. Just the way that chicken, cooking chicken. It fell in the, it fell in the flames. A dead chicken fell in the fire. <laughs> I don't... If there's just such magical thinking that really sounds like a kid, right? Yeah. But it doesn't sound like a kid. Okay, it doesn't sound like an adult writing for a kid. It actually sounds like a kid. <laughs> well, you know, I don't I don't know what else we can say about somebody who can just present I imagine the amount of work that went into writing this. Well, he talks about that. And that that was one thing that I did find charming. It's the chapter called Colonial Expansion and War. It's on 446. And the subtitle is a chapter which ought to give you a great deal of political information about the last 50 years, but which really contains several explanations and a few apologies. 
And it's like my very favorite part of the whole book. Yeah. He goes into this, it's this very self-aware moment where he talks about how he included what he wanted to, which we've already talked about that. And then he had, the publisher was like, wanted it to be different, wanted the story to gallop rather than walk. And he gave parts of the manuscript to his friends and they were upset because their favorites weren't in it. And I don't know, it's just a really interesting thing to read it is a moment of self-awareness that I thought was very, actually very funny. It also, the last thing I have to say about this book is I did not know until this book that Christopher Columbus, his <laughs> actual name, the non-Americanized name of Christopher Columbus was Cristoforo Colombo. You just want to call him Colombo. I do. It's the only thing I like about him at this point in time. There's nothing else I like about him except that his his actual name was Columbo. If that's accurate. And then, <laughs> and then he also, Van Loon also mis well misspells Genghis Khan, and it's spelled J E N G I Z. So I like to think that it's pronounced Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan, like almost like Jenga, because I'm twelve. <laughs> Well, apparently so is he, so you're in good company. (laughs) Miami Book Fair is back in November with hundreds of your favorite authors and their new books, and you can see them in person and online. Come to downtown Miami or watch at home for best-selling children's and YA authors like Kaysen Callender, Mary Pope Osborne, and R.L. Stein, the master of spooky tales and spine-tingling suspense. Rainbow Rowell, Chris Grabenstein, and Zoraida Cordova will also be there talking about love stories, mysteries, and mythical creatures like grumpy unicorns and fire-breathing chipmunks, plus story time, comics, arts and crafts, science experiments, music, robots, and other family fun in Children's Alley during Street Fair weekend. Stop by to learn how to play the drums, hang out with stilt walkers and balloon twisters, or write your very own poem. And there's lots of other cool stuff to do and see, too. Miami Book Fair starts Sunday, November 13th. Details at MiamiBookFair.com. Did you have any read-alikes, Marcy? I'll tell you, I didn't, really. I mean, no other book I know attempts such a comprehensive history or makes so much of it up. Uh, I think... (laughs) (laughs) And it... so there's nothing really like this. And as far as read betters, I would just say to pick regular history. And if you need it to be made up like this historical fiction, you know, like I, I think that if you read through this book, you pick up a thing here and there, but you don't really retain the scope of, of what he's trying to do. And because he goes past everything so quickly, it's hard to really keep those details. I, I think what makes history come alive for me is when an author takes a book and writes about one thing and you can like really feel the characters. I mean, if he wants feeling history, make somebody feel history, which he did not. You, know, you, didn't, fi- you didn't feel history? No. I mean, okay, so <laughs> to, to pick an example... There's a book that I love. It's called Desiree, and it's a grown-up novel, and it is about Napoleon's first fiance. And I am sure there are just egregious breaches from historical fact in that book. But the the outline of what happened is accurate, and it makes you actually 
like feel those characters as people instead of just like a quick fact that you trot past. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I learned more from that like romancy novel <laughs> about Napoleon than I did from this book. And I know that this book is attempting to cover like the entire scope of Napoleon's you know, campaigns. So I I think for me, a read better would be almost any history book that has accurate (laughs) facts and then can depart from that into like a fictional speculation of how the emotions might've gone just because it makes those people real, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. There's really nothing like this at the same time. So it is interesting in that way that is he took on so much and he did create such a big book. I don't really have a read alike. Like I just would like you everyone to check out the John Seibert Medal winners. Mm-hmm. Those are nonfiction books for kids. They're properly vetted, they're examined and they're contemporary, even if they're not contemporary topics. And so there's gonna be a better chance that the the facts are correct. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I really have to say. But Marcy we did it. It's our hundredth episode. We did. I can't believe it's been a hundred episodes. I can and I can't, right? Yeah. Like it's kind of amazing. And I'm I'm really glad to have had this journey with you. Same. I mean, and it's funny too, like I know we're wrapping up with the first year, which has been a bit of a slog, but this year, this nineteen twenty-two season is the only one that feels like a hundred episodes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everything else is so much fun and it's usually even if we don't like a book, it's fun to debate it and discuss it. Mm-hmm. We're really happy that all of you have stuck with us and we apologize for the content of the books this year. But our next season why do I keep forgetting what the next season is? <laughs> our next season is two thousand seven. And it will be a lot more fun. Yeah, it will be. And we are actually going to be taking a little hiatus. Uh, We'll be back in the spring, spring 2023. During that time, please check our website, newberrytart.com for updates and keep in touch. Uh, We're going to be adding some new interviews, just written interviews. We're going to be adding show notes and transcripts and a few other features. So we hope that you have a good end of this year and a good beginning of next year. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Thanks for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Please find us on social media. We're on all the usuals. And please rate and review us on whatever platform you listen. It helps other people find the podcast and helps keep us going. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.